Hello, and welcome to Book Club of One. I am Jacob, a librarian, and through the course of a year I read a lot of books. Join me as I detail and share my impressions of the books that have entertained or educated me the most. We've made it over 50 episodes, and also, we're very close to a thousand plays. Right before recording this, I did a quick double check. We've got 17 more listens. So hopefully with this episode and next week's, we'll hit that landmark thousand listens. So share with your book-loving friends. Uh, during the past two weeks, I was sick, and that did have some small impact on reading. So I was not able to get to Around the World in 80 books, but I was able to catch up with the other Reading Soon books, which we'll talk about shortly. Like episode 49, this week we touch on music, one of the big books of fall, and nonfiction about contemporary issues, one of which is a graphic novel. Our first featured book is Dirty Work, Essential Jobs and the Hidden Toil of Inequality in America by I.O. Press, who is a white American author and journalist. He contributes to The New Yorker, The New York Times, and other publications. Since the spring of 2021, he is also a sociologist with a PhD from New York University. He was a recipient of the James Aronson Award for Social Justice Journalism, an Andrew Carnegie Fellowship, and a Coleman Center Fellowship at the New York Public Library. His first book, Absolute Convictions, was published in 2006, and his second, Beautiful Souls, published in 2012. I first came across Dirty Work through a review in book pages and found it in the new books at a local library. Dirty Works is an examination of, quote, the, the morally troubling jobs that society tacitly condones and the hidden class of workers who do them, end quote. And that is from Press's personal site. So through Dirty Work, we have sections discussing the work of Department of Corrections employees, both the guards and the psychological staff, drone pilots, slaughterhouse workers, and the hidden costs of energy in computers. The focus and discussion is centered on the ethical aspects of these occupations and the experience of those working in them, as well as often the key question of what influences people to take and keep these jobs. And frequently, it is the money, the need for money, and possibly benefits in their region. Arguably, the jobs featured are not so much hidden, but willy overlooked or ignored, perhaps willfully hidden, in the obfuscating of reporting or selecting of locations in what are described here by press as rural ghettos. As this is a new release, published in October, press is able to discuss the implications of COVID-19 on these jobs as well. In fact, press frequently uses the category of essential workers, in particular the medical practitioners, as a talking point in the way they were widely supported or acknowledged as having a highly stressful, difficult job. The majority of the jobs explored through press's book do not have anywhere near the same support. And while the majority of the book looks to those trapped by circumstances and needs, the section devoted to dirty tech does look at situations where employees do have more power and opportunity to question or push back against their employers, but is very much a privileged position not available to many of the subjects of this book. An important reminder, and something I sometimes struggle with, is that as individuals, we are largely powerless. But as Stress states in the epilogue of page 267, 
after listing examples of how small acts of kindness or environmentally-based decision-makings have small impact. Quote, but collectively, we are not powerless to alter these things. As I noted at the outset, a core feature of dirty work is that it has a tacit mandate from good people who refrain from asking too many questions about it because its results do not ultimately displease them. This mandate is important, but is not set in stone. The attitudes and assumptions that it rests upon can change and indeed have changed, end quote. And while dramatic changes do often come from the top down, they can filter up to the grassroots collectively. We do have some power. Featured book two is The First World War by Sir Hugh Strachan, a white British military historian and professor. Since 2015, he is the professor of international relations at the University of St. Andrews. His prior position was as the Cicelli Professor of History of War at All Souls College, Oxford. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, the Royal Historical Society, and the British Academy. His research interests are military history from the 18th century to date, including contemporary strategic studies, but with particular interest in the First World War and in the history of the British Army. I became aware of this book through my neighbor lending me the First World War, the complete series DVDs released in 2005. And now that I've finished this book, I promise Carl that I will watch those. I know I have had them forever. But this book was the basis for that DVD series. And the First World War is a comprehensive survey of the war divided into sec 10 sections that seeks to demonstrate the truly global aspects of the war. And one of the it is one of the most concise but thorough histories of the First World War. Those 10 sections, again, explore the truly global scale of the First World War in Africa, Asia, the Middle East, the oceans, and Europe. While many of the major personalities are named and briefly described, the differing priorities of nations are more equitably described and explained than in some of the other World War I histories I've read. For instance, the Austro-Hungarian Empire's war plans are detailed even when they encounter or greatly complicated German plans, as well as life on the home front of many of these nationalities. Overall, the U.S. is not described with much detail until later in the book, and as the U.S. didn't join the war until 1917, that is fitting. For those of you more book-averse, one can watch the 523-minute or more than eight hours runtime of this series across four discs. I promise I'll be starting it soon. If anything could be said in criticism about this book, it might not be for beginners. While it does provide a very good overview of the war due to its lack of full, full description and detailing many different uh, generals or public figures, it might lead to other seeking the need to seek additional sources. So great book for those interested in World War I, but for beginners, you might want to try something else. Our third book is Sellout, the major label feeding frenzy that swept punk, emo, and hardcore from 1994 to 2007. It is by Dan Ozzy, a white American music writer and podcaster. Alongside Laura Jane Grace, he co-authored Tranny, Confessions of Punk Rock's Most Infamous Anarchist Sellout, published in 2016. He has served as staff writer and editor at Vice's music site Noisy, and has contributed to Billboard, Spin, The Fader, The Guardian, The AV Club, and others. He has a podcast-slash-newsletter called Reply Alt that can be found wherever you listen to podcasts, or through Substack, you can sign up for a newsletter. I became aware of Sellout 
When it was announced somewhere in February 2020, possibly the music news website Chorus.fm, which is the, the child of absolute punk, for those who remember that. Sellout is a history of punk, emo, and hardcore following the release of Nirvana's Nevermind to 2007, as told through the major label journey of 11 bands. And I was very excited to read this from its first announcement. Not only is Jeff Rickley from Thursday on the cover, but there's a whole chapter devoted to them and some other personal favorites, such as Jimmy World, Jawbreaker, and Against Me. While it's fairly young for the first couple of chapters, much of the time detailed coincide with my youthful interest and disposable income that the major labels wanted. So at different points in my life, I definitely owned, or possibly still own, albums or shirts for Green Day, Jawbreaker, Jimmy Eat World, Thursday, My Chemical Romance, Rise Against, and Against Me. So this book was something that both allowed me to look back at the times when these musicians were active or about maybe having the potential to have their big break, as well as something that I've always enjoyed with hearing about the process of the creation of those songs. So like interviews with the band members or the record label, all of them involved in the creation of it, as well as some of the fans or community reaction to those releases. So this was printed, presented chronologically, and Ozzy details each band's development from their origins to signing to a major light bulb, and then talks some of the aftermath. Some bands go on to success, uh, a small portion becoming huge household names, and others burn out, fall apart, or return to humbler venues. I was fascinated by many of the origin stories of how band members met and began to play together, of putting music out through smaller labels, and then how they were discovered and courted by the major labels. Many of the interviews detail bands trying to grapple with their fame and change circumstances, or the mental struggles that come from a life that is derived or earning money mainly through being a touring band. And bands and artists that are direct subjects of one chapter do sometimes appear in later chapters, some of them to check in. So for example, in the Jimmy Eat World chapter, it's about their development on Capitol Records, the release of their first two major label records, and then their ending of that relationship, and then them finding success for a later album that is mentioned in some of the other band chapters. So this is both a success, success story and cautionary tale, exploring both those genuinely interested in making and sharing music and those just looking to make money off of those. Ozzy completed lots of interviews and also created an extensive playlist of the songs mentioned. I think it's over nine hours. And he has also been offering through his podcast and some zines, he's been sharing tangential interviews or band stories that didn't fit into the final version of the book. One of the more recent of those was a Reply Alt podcast episode called Sellout Stories with Norm Brannon from Texas is the Reason. All of this worth pursuing if you're interested in that style of music or that time in popular music. Book four is The Lincoln Highway by Amor Towles, a white American novelist and former investment banker. He has published three novels, Rules of Civility and The Gentleman in Moscow being the other two, and one collection of short stories. He graduated from Yale College and received an MA in English from Stanford University. I became aware of this book because I had read and liked A Gentleman in Moscow, and have had the, his first book, Rules of Civility, on my reading list for quite a while. The Lincoln Highway begins in June 1954, 
where Emmett Watson finished serving time for involuntary manslaughter and returned to his Nebraska home to pick up his eight-year-old brother and head west to start a new life. But before they can leave, two friends from Emmett's time in the, the institution appear and derail any plans. So this book is meant to span 10 days and is told from multiple perspectives. In some ways, this allows for a more varied story, but sometimes distract as there are one or two characters only given a single chapter. And we'll expand on that a little more shortly. But it is a coming-of-age story that is also a road trip novel about, in part, the Lincoln Highway. A lot of pluck and luck and a somewhat earned ending. However, getting to that ending can take a while. So despite the number of narrators, many of the characters felt underdeveloped or not very nuanced, and race and gender are not approached always in the best manners. The latter, I'm not sure if this was meant to be a reflection of the 1950s setting, or if it was more based on authorial assumptions. So two examples of those. Ulysses is an African-American World War II veteran who is living as a drifter hopping trains, who winds up rescuing the younger brother, spoilers here, and then becomes his friend, protector, and audience. So the younger brother, Billy, winds up carrying a book of adventurers with him on this journey, and he reads Ulysses about the original Ulysses of Greek myth. And one of the, uh, one of the few female characters, Sally, might be romantically involved with Emmett, but she keeps dropping everything to go help him, and he doesn't really show any gratitude for any of this. And I still feel like, even though she narrated a few chapters, I didn't learn a whole bunch about her other than that she wanted to get off the farm. So, an interesting book, one that is one of the big books of fall, but for me, fell rather flat. And our final book of the episode is the 500 Years of Indigenous Resistance comic book, revised and expanded. It is by Gord Hill, an indigenous artist, author, political activist, and member of the Kwakwakiwak Nation. He has been involved in indigenous peoples and anti-globalization movements since 1990. He lives in British Columbia. The revised and expanded edition has a foreword with Dr. Pamela Palmater, a lawyer professor with the, uh, I saw it pronounced as either the Mi'kmaq or Mi'kmaq tribe citizen and a member of the Eel River Bar First Nation in northern New Brunswick. So I noticed this book as a newly added ebook graphic novel through a local library. But I'd also recently finished reading a book about graphic novels in libraries that listed a lot of nonfiction titles, so this seemed to fit well in with what I'd just recently been reading. So this book was first published in 2010 uh, as a graphic portrayal of indigenous resistance and activism to the European colonization of the Americas from first contact to the present. The revised version published in October of this year is in color and adds additional recent events and fills some historical gaps and corrects some inaccuracies. So this is a, a, a very well done graphic history of 500 years, portrays this flashpoint event simply and plainly. So some of the content featured is the Spanish conquest of the Aztec, the Battle of Wounded Knee in 1890, and pipeline protests of the 2010s and 2020. It is extensively researched to be sure of accuracies for clothing, shelter, weapons, and so on, but we don't see a lot of that. They aren't cited, so it either looks correct or not. We have only the author's word to go on for that. 
It showcases the tenacity and resistance against genocide and discusses massacres, torture, rape, displacement, and the civilization of the indigenous peoples of the Americas. And if you're curious to learn more about it, shared in the show notes is a Comic Beats article from October where Avery Kaplan interviewed Gord Hill about the revised and expanded edition of this book. Our reading soon in progress titles are First, Run For It, Stories of Slaves Who Fought for Their Freedom by Marcello de Salette, translated by Andrea Rosenberg. It is one of the first literary and artistic efforts to face up to Brazil's hidden history of slavery. Run For It tells unforgettable stories about Afro-Brazilian slaves who rebelled against oppression. And the something I started reading early this morning is Hell of a Hat, The Rise of 1990s Ska and Swing by Kenneth Partridge. In the late 90s, third-wave ska broke across the American alternative music scene like a tsunami. In sweaty clubs across the nation, kids danced themselves dehydrated to the peppy rhythms and punchy horns of the bands like the Mighty Mighty Boston's and Real Big Fish. As ska caught fire, a swing revival brought even more sharp-dressed brass-packing bands to national attention. Hell of a Hat dives deep into this unique musical moment. This has been another episode of Book Club of One. Thank you for listening. I welcome constructive criticism and book recommendations, or even if you found a book through this episode and want to share the story, feel free to reach out through Instagram and Gmail at Book Club of Uno. Book Club of One is recorded and distributed by Anchor.fm. And remember, no one should be shamed for reading.